morning, everybody. I've been reading a book by an author. Her name is uh, Judith Shulevitz, and the book's called A Sabbath Day. She's also a journalist. And uh, in this book, she talks about her rediscovery of the Sabbath, and she's a very unorthodox Jew, and so she talks about how she's kind of coming back to understanding how important it is in her life. And in the book, she tells a story about a famous experiment years ago by two psychologists who were trying to find out what is it that causes somebody to stop and help somebody else who's in distress? What variable is it? Is it their personality? Is it the uh, cultural background they grew up in? Is it the situation at hand? And so they went out and they selected some students from Princeton Theological Seminary. And they put them in a room and they administered a personality test to find out what their personalities were like. Afterwards, they told them that they needed more information and here's what they wanted them to do. They asked half of the students to prepare a very quick sermon on the story of the Good Samaritan, assuming that if they were thinking about the Good Samaritan, they would be inclined to be more compassionate, more caring toward others. The other half, they said, we want you to give a talk on the challenges of finding a place or a job after you graduate uh, seminary. And so they wanted to see what would happen with them in terms of not thinking about compassion, but thinking about a problem that they had to solve for themselves. Then they dismissed them in thirds. The first third, after they left, the researcher cornered them and said, you guys have to go to a building across the campus and you're already late. I need you to get there as fast as you can and start. The next third, they said to them, you know what, you're, you're right on time. Just don't dawdle, make your way over there. Uh, your audience is waiting to hear from you. The last third, they said, we're running behind time. Uh, the other groups, you know, everything's stacked up. You've got plenty of time. You can meander over there. While the students were on their way, there was a man who was leaning up against a building in an alleyway that they couldn't help miss. Or they, I mean, they, they couldn't help but see. And he was the real experiment. And when they would walk by, he would moan and kind of groan. And, and uh, if somebody stopped to ask him if he was all right, he would, in a very uh, groggy and confused voice, kind of let them know that he had a respiratory condition and that he had just taken his medicine. He'd probably be all right in a few minutes. And if they insisted, no, we need to help you, he would allow them to take him to another building. So after the day was done and the experiment was finished, the researchers tallied up all the results. And what they discovered is that it's not your personality that causes you to stop and help somebody or not stop and help somebody. And it's not your cultural background. And it's not necessarily a situation. The variable that determines whether or not a person stops and helps somebody boils down to hurriedness. The more hurried you are, the less inclined you are to help somebody in need. And so they wrote, ethics become a luxury at the speed of our daily lives increases. Luxury, uh, excuse me, ethics becomes a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increase. Is your life feel fast-paced to you right now? I think all of us would probably agree, yes, it does. There are people to see and places to be at and things that have to get done and deadlines. It doesn't matter whether you're a student 
or whether you're an adult. I talk to people who, retired, who are retired who tell me their lives are just as busy than before they retired, which makes me wonder why I retire. <laughs> Life is so hurried, the tyranny of the urgent, and it has a tremendous effect on us. It affects our relationship with others. It affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship, it affects our relationship with ourselves. I mean, the stress, the rapid heartbeats, the elevated blood pressure, the restlessness and insomnia, the sweaty palms, the feeling of anxiety and nervousness, a lot of it, a lot of it is a result of this hurried life that we live. And the danger is that it can cause our souls, our inner being to burn out. And a lot of times our physical symptoms are just simply our soul crying out to us, if you won't slow me down, I'll slow me down and give you some issues. How do we live a balanced life? I know we hear that word all the time. It's kind of a trite, you know, word, balance. But how do you get to that place where, where you have a sense of wholeness and you have a sense of healthy relationships with God, with others, and with yourself? Let's see what God has to say as we close out our series of Jesus Lifestyle. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Would you please? Luke chapter 6. It's kind of our springboard into the topic I want to talk about today. And while you're doing that, we have a brand new series that starts next weekend called Encounter. And I hope you'll be here, and I hope you'll invite your friends and family to join us because we're going to encounter Christ at a very deep level in our lives as we move through the Passion up to Easter. And you don't want to miss it. Then after Easter, we have a wonderful two-weekend series on how to, how to deal with the crazy people in your life. How many of you have some crazy people in your life? Yeah, are they sitting next to you? Just kidding, all right? Just kidding. You won't want to miss that series, all right? You won't want to miss that series. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick up some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he, had his when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In this passage of Scripture, there's a word that really represents God's cure for the craziness around our lives and the craziness we sometimes get into with all the hurriedness and urgency that we feel these days. And it's the word Sabbath. Would you say it with me? Sabbath, right? Now, what is the Sabbath? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And the fourth of the Ten Commandments helps explain it to us because God says 
He wants us to observe the Sabbath. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your mule or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God need to rest after six days of creating? The answer to the question is obviously not. God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't need that. So why does it say, and why does God say in Genesis that he rested? Timothy Keller, pastor, theologian, says that when God had finished everything he created, he looked at it and he said, it is good, and he rested. What Keller says is that God was saying, in essence, I am satisfied and content with what I've done. That's what it means when God says, it is good, and he rested. And God invites you and me to join him in that. To step back one out of seven and say, I am satisfied. I am contented with my relationship with God and what he's done for me, Christ on the cross, forgiveness. I am contented and satisfied with my relationships. I'm contented and I'm satisfied with what God has done in my life, with, with myself. Can I ask you a question? Rhetorical. Can you just sit back and say, I'm satisfied. I'm contented with God, with my relationships, with my life. That's a really powerful question, isn't it? One I have to think about a lot. But it's what the Sabbath invites us to do. There's a new discipline of science. It's not that old a discipline. It's called chronobiology. And what the chronobiologists are discovering is that our health has a, has a Sabbath cycle to it. They can tell by blood pressure. They can tell by migraines. When they occur, when they don't occur. They've also discovered psychiatrists and, and behavioral specialists that there's a Sabbath kind of rhythm to our behavioral patterns. And in fact, they're on the verge, according to Judith Shulevitz in her book, they're on the verge of discovering that there may even be a Sabbath kind of rhythm in nature itself. And so God has written into our DNA, God has written into nature itself the need to take a Sabbath, one out of seven days, and step back. Why? Because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. God could have made us all you know, not need sleep, not need rest. Just go, 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 go. But he didn't. And he didn't for a reason. God wants us, like him, to step back and say, it is good. I'm satisfied. I'm content. Now, if that's what God wants for us, we understand that the enemy is going to try to do everything he can to destroy that, right? I mean, I believe there's, there, I do believe in the devil. 
By the way, uh, after our crazy series, I'm going to do a series on uh, the common arguments that people have with Christianity, why they, why they don't think it's true, why it's wrong. And I think you're going to be helped, and I hope you'll bring your skeptical friends to that, all right? That's down the, that's down the line. I, I believe there is a real devil. I believe there's spiritual warfare in the world. And I believe the enemy wants to do anything and everything he can to keep us from being content and keep us from being satisfied. But he knows there's a longing in us for that because we have the Sabbath rhythm there. So what he does is he, he offers alternatives. And when you read about what happened in Luke chapter 6, one of the ways he sometimes offers alternatives is by religion, by rules, by legalism, and rituals. And that's why the Pharisees are cranky with Jesus. He's breaking all the rules about the Sabbath. Let me explain to you what I mean so you'll appreciate the passage more. You know, God gave the principle of the Sabbath, right? The Pharisees came along and they said, but what does the Sabbath really mean? What does it mean that we shouldn't work on the Sabbath? What is work? And they came up with all kinds of interpretations and rules or laws about it to say this is what work is and you shouldn't do it. But then they had to define all their own rules that they came up with. So, in other words, what does that rule mean? So they created more rules. And I'll give you an example of what one of those rules would be. They would say, for instance, carrying something is one way that a person could work. So how much can you carry without it becoming a sin, without breaking the Sabbath? Imagine a bunch of them huddled together trying to solve that. So they came up with rules like this. Carrying food, enough food, the weight of a dry fig, that is a sin. Carrying enough wine to mix in a goblet, that is sin. Carrying enough olive oil to anoint a, you know, a, a member of your body, a finger or whatever, that would be sin. Carrying enough water to mix in an eye salve, that would be sin. And on and on and on it went. Even beyond the time of Jesus, they kept arguing and talking about this to where it got to the point of, if I lift my lamp up in my house and I move it from this table to that table, is that work? Is that wrong? If uh, a tailor walks out with, you know, a soy needle in his or in his pocket, is that a sin? Is that intent to work? Is that wrong? If I wear my false teeth on the Sabbath, is that wrong? If I wear my false limb on the Sabbath, is that wrong? If I, as a father, lift my child up to hug him, is that wrong? How would you like to live with that kind of atmosphere? Drive you bugging crazy, wouldn't it? Now, we don't wrestle so much with that anymore. Our big deal is urgency and hurriedness and busyness. But theirs was all about rules and regulations. And in their mind, Jesus was breaking them all all over the place. And so Jesus wants to set them straight. He says, do you guys remember the story about David, how he was hungry? What did David do? He came and he ate and gave to his men some of the consecrated bread that was set before God, the showbread, which when it was time to be changed out, only the priests could then eat. And he said the priests, the high priest gave David the bread, invited him to eat the bread, and never rebukes him, and God never God never yells at David for it. In fact, he goes on in the same account in Mark chapter 2. Same story, but a little bit more detail. And in verse 27 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man to step back, to be satisfied, to be content. 
The Sabbath was made so, so man could be healed. So man could eat. So man could have joy in his life. You guys are taking it all away. And then in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's he's talking about himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know why Jesus said that? Because Jesus was the architect of the Sabbath. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, that in him and through him, everything that was created was made. And that it all consists in him. So what Jesus does, Jesus shows up and he says, guys, I am the architect of the Sabbath. I invented the Sabbath. Let me tell you how the Sabbath works. This is what the Sabbath means, how you ought to live your lives. Well, for us, you know, it's not so much legalism. I wish I had like 45 to 50 minutes to teach because I, I, there, are some, there are some faiths where it's still very legalistic. I grew up in a very legalistic faith. I mean, it was down to like how deep can you breathe on Sundays? Not quite. That was a little exaggeration. But it was so many rules. I hated it. I didn't look forward to Sundays. Right? But for us, for us, the Sabbath, all right, for most of us, it's just hurry, 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 hurry. How can you have a Sabbath when you're always hurrying, when you're always busy, when everything is so urgent? So what are the lies that Satan sends us to, to get us to not want to keep the Sabbath? Because nowhere do you ever read that Jesus said the Sabbath no longer matters. He corrects it, but there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus says, and now it's the New Testament, you don't have to worry about the Sabbath anymore. So here's one of the lies Satan feeds us. It's the lie that more is better. That the more money you have, the more activities you're involved in, the more, the more um, uh, success you gain in life, you are going to find contentment and satisfaction. When the reality is, the more I seek, I become indebted to whomever or whatever is providing me the more. Right? Look at your credit card bill. <laughs> right? It's like a pusher, right? So Satan pushes stuff at us through the media, through peer pressure, through all kinds of means. More, more, more. And I get involved with more, more, more. And pretty soon, my goodness, I am stressed out trying to keep up. He also pushes the lie that workaholism is a virtue. So we love to brag about how many hours we work. We kind of casually drop it. Oh, I had a 75-hour week this week. Wow. Been there, done that, haven't you? And the reality is all workaholism means is we're overworked. And so what happens is, you know, when you live in a more, more, more kind of materialistic culture, you have to work more, more, more to keep things and have things. And when you finally get to the top, all of a sudden you're panicked because you realize that somebody might come along and take it, so you work even harder. My brother who works for a world, you know, a, a, a corporation, a worldwide corporation, he's an engineer for the firm, was telling me the other day, he says, you know, at this point in my life, I ought to be able to sit back. But he said, I'm having to work harder because of the competition, the up-and-comers, who are working really hard because they want to take his place. What a vicious world, huh? Now, here's an experiment. I've mentioned this to every service. I get the same response. Let's see what happens in this service, all right? Don't believe the lie that technology will make your life easier. Kind of the same response. Don't believe the lie that technology will give you more time. What technology does is technology makes it possible for you to work anywhere, anytime. Right? It's a blessing and a curse. 
And please don't believe the lie that ultimate fulfillment comes from your job. Now, I think you should go to work and enjoy your job. I think you should go to work and have some sense of looking forward to it because, you, you know, you're using your skills, your abilities, and you're making a difference. I, really, I do believe in that. I mean, who wants to just go to your job every day if you hate it? I know some people do. At one time, they said 80% of the American workforce hates their job. I don't know if that's improved or not. But listen carefully. When your job becomes more fulfilling than your marriage, more fulfilling than your children and your family, more fulfilling than time with God, you are in deep weeds. You're in trouble. Listen carefully. You are not what you do. I don't care what the world tells you. You are not what you do. And the Sabbath is for you to step back and realize whose you are, who you are, and why God put you here in the first place. And when you don't take the rhythm, when you don't do the one and seven, when you break that rhythm and you think, I can get away from it, you lose who you really are. And pretty soon it becomes about your job or it becomes about your successes. What happens when the job goes away? What happens when you get fired? What happens when your success fails? What happens when your health fails? Who are you then, right? And that's, that's a brutal world we live in, and we got to be careful with it. You're saying, Pastor, could you, could you, like, focus on something a little more positive right now? <laughs> I'm just feeling really overwhelmed. My palms are sweating. My heartbeat's increasing. How should we spend the Sabbath? Let me give you some suggestions, all right? First one's very simple. You've got to be intentional in choosing when you will have your Sabbath. And I suggest if you can choose Sunday, choose Sunday. Choose Sunday. You say, well, I work on Sundays. Then choose another day. So, well, I work every day of the week. Then either choose a new career <laughs> or, and I know some people do, they really do, or find hours during the week that you pull back and have your Sabbath. Maybe four hours Tuesday and three hours Thursday, however you work it out. It's not worth losing your soul over. Secondly, how many parents? Let me see your hands. Awesome. How many students? Let me see your hands. You guys need to have a conversation after today. You ready? Parents, it is your job to teach your children the significance of the Sabbath. And you don't do it by just talking. You do it by living it with them. You've got to make that decision. You've got to make that choice. Because we have gotten into a place in our, you see how screwed up our culture is with materialism and busyness. We've gotten to this place now where, where our jobs, our careers, our hobbies, our sports, our activities have become things that we feel we cannot do without. But God is optional. We would never say God is optional. But what you do betrays what you really believe. And in the American church today, God is optional. Church, the gathering of the saints, is optional. I'll get to it later. It is insignificant. And I just want you to look around the culture today and tell me, how are we doing by ignoring the way God wired us to live and to be? That's why Judas Shulevitz, who's not even a Christian, not even a good Jew by our own admission, 
is being drawn back to Sabbath because how crazy life has become. There must be something about it. Say, Pastor, you're stepping on my toes. Move on. All right. All right. Let's try this one. If you're going to choose a Sabbath and you're going to model it for your family, and I hope that you will and are doing that, because by the way, if you don't do it, here's what's going to happen, Mom, Dad. You ready for this? Um, let's let's say we have a scale of one to ten, spiritually speaking. All right, this is ten. It's like on fire for God. I mean, you're just whew, right. This is like who is God, right? And let's say you're living at a seven. You know, you kind of read the Bible, you kind of pray, you kind of go to church when it's convenient, but there's a whole lot of other stuff going on in your life. What's going to happen is your kids are going to live at best when they become an adult at a six. Maybe, maybe a five. Now, when they grow up and they have a family and they have kids, where are they going to be? Four, maybe a three. And when they, you know, when those kids grow up, where are they going to be? And then you come to a day and an age when there's no regard for God or his word or scripture or prayer at all. And God is gone. And then God is gone. See what I'm trying to say? You've got to, you know, you've got to bring it up so they go up the scale with you. And it's not just about now. We have to think generationally of your decisions, the effect it has down the line. All right, so here's the third thing. If you're going to have a, if you're going to have a Sabbath, how do you do it intentionally? How do you do it intentionally? How do you get that place where you can rest? All right? That's what we want to hear, right? Oh, okay, I want to rest. I want satisfaction in my life. So I have three quick suggestions for you, okay? And the twins aren't playing today, and the Vikings aren't. So if I go like one and a half, two minutes over, you're going to be okay with that? Yeah. Or are you in a hurry? No. All right. All right. So first of all, all right, first of all, connect with God. Connect with God. All right? How do you connect with God? On your Sabbath, you got to have personal connection with God, right? Personal connection with God. How do you do that? That's, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to tell you 20 minutes, three hours. That's, you have to decide. But by personal connection with God, I mean you need to have time where you come to terms with whose you are. I belong to you, God. You paid a price for me. You sent Jesus down the cross for me and so filled with worship and thanksgiving. Who you are, you are a child of God. Because all week long, the world is trying to tell you whose you are, the company woman, the company man, the athlete, the student, the whatever it is. They're telling you who you are. They're telling you oftentimes that you're a failure. They're telling you that you will never make it. They're telling you you're not good enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not smart enough. Hey, I need to remember I'm a child of God. I'm blessed by God. God loves me in spite of my failures. And why I'm here. And why I'm here. Then you need to connect with God corporately. And what I mean by corporately, maybe that's not a good word, is the gathering of the church. The Bible says, and forsake not the assembling of yourselves together so much the more as the days get worse. And somehow we've gotten this idea in American Christianity that I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be part of the body of Christ. If you woke up tomorrow and your arm was missing, would you be a little concerned? Would you go asking family members, where's my arm? Where'd you put it? Give it back. Right? You say, that's so facetious. I tell you what, we're called the body of Christ. And all, all over America today, there are pieces and parts of the body of Christ that are not meeting and assembling together. And the body suffers as a result of it. 
Say, oh, you're doing this because you want a bigger attendance. You want, you know, you're worried about the offering. No, I think I've gotten past that. We're the body of Christ. And there's things that God does when we're all together that he doesn't do when we're all by ourselves. He loves it in heaven. Read Revelation. Where the assemblies of God come together. In the Old Testament, the assembly. In the New Testament, the assemblies of God's gathering coming together. God forbid there's ever another 9-11. But it's really interesting after 9-11 how churches were so full. Then what happened? We went back to what? A hurried, busy lives. God is optional. Got to teach you. Got to do it. All right? So connect with God. Second thing on the um, Sabbath, you got to connect, right? Connect with others. Connect with others. And I'm thinking particularly, those of you who are families, connecting with your family. Connecting with your kids, your grandkids, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. Connecting with those friends who mean so much to you. How do you connect with them? Do what the Bible does. They always have meals in the Bible. You ever notice that? Read the New Testament. How many meals are mentioned that Jesus is a part of? Have a, have a meal. Have a, when's the last time you had a family meal? We all sat down. And when you're sitting down, it's a time to do what? It's a time to reflect. It's a time to give thanks. It's a time to talk about the future. And not in negative terms, but in, in God's terms. It's a time to tell God's stories. It's a time to talk about what God has done. It's a time to remember whose we are and who we are and why we're here. And it should be a joyful time with chocolate ice cream and whatever else, right? You got to make it different. It's got to be something your kids look forward to. Oh, I wish I had more time. Your kids look forward to, all right? Then, last but not least, connect. You got to connect with yourself. You gotta have you gotta have some just time to be alone. Now, this is one of the most important things I'm gonna mention to you. Ready? Why don't you write this down, okay? On the Sabbath, you need to take a nap. Okay? You need to take a nap. Now, here's the strange thing. Every service is given an applause at that point. And I don't think that's insignificant. I think a lot of us want it, but we're afraid of what it will be perceived as. God wired you to need to rest. He wired you to need to take your foot off the accelerator. And when you live God's way and you follow the way he's wired you, it will change you internally. It will change your relationship with him. It will change your relationship with others. Marsha reminded me of a passage in Isaiah 58 last night about the Sabbath, I want to read to you Isaiah 58, verse 13. He said, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the, right, on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You say, isn't that just for Israel? Yes, that's very specific to Israel, but listen, I also believe it applies to you and me. I believe that if you honor God, if you follow the rhythm he created in your life, you will be blessed. I believe that with all my heart. 
So we started the service with an experiment. I want to tell you about another experiment that happened a couple of years ago in Washington, D.C. There was a, a guy that showed up at the metro station there, one of the busy metro stations, with his violin. He opened the box up, took his violin, and he began to play uh, pieces of music written by Bach. He was in the morning, so it was the rush hour, and about 1,100 people went by. And it was a social experiment. It was all videotaped. And on the videotape, you see just people going, 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 going. Nobody's really stopping. And then all of a sudden, you see a guy kind of stop and listen, check his watch, and he's got to go. Another guy leaning up against the wall, checks his watch, he's got to go. The only one that seems to want to stay is a three-year-old. You see the mother kind of dragging the three-year-old along while he's looking back like, I want to stay and listen and watch this guy. When the whole experiment was done, 45 minutes of playing Bach in a metro station, only about 20 people had really stopped to listen at all. And he only received $32 of tips in his violin box. What nobody knew that morning, evidently, was that the man playing the violin was Joshua Bell, who is the premier violinist in the world. He played intricate pieces of Bach for 45 minutes on a violin worth $3.5 million. The week before, he had played in Boston, where people paid an average of $100 a seat and listened with raptured attention and gave great ovations because they were hearing a master play the instrument. The people who are in a hurry, they got to be somewhere because they got things to do and people to say and things to get done, didn't have time to stop and listen to the master play. Every day when you get up, the master is playing. Every night while you sleep, the master is playing. He is playing always, all around you. But if you don't slow down, you'll never hear his music. This morning, as I do every Sunday, I got here early, and I got out of my car, and I walked across over to the, our campus, and I just felt, I felt the Lord saying to me, slow down. And the way he caused me to slow down is I heard the honk of geese. <laughs> and I thought, already? And I just stopped. And I looked up and I realized, oh, the moon, half a moon is so bright, so beautiful. I looked over and I saw some beautiful twinkling stars. And then I looked up and the, the ambient life, light coming up from this area was shining off the bottom of the wings of a flight of geese. And it was spectacular. Moon, stars, and the geese. And I thought, God, you're up early playing. <laughs> and I almost missed it. So I'm such a hurry. I wonder what you're missing. Because you're not following the Sabbath, which was placed and wired into your being. Let's pray. Father God, 
we humble ourselves before you this morning. And I am sure, Lord, there are many of us, I know I was this, this week, that are just convicted that, God, we're in such a hurry. We're in such a hurry. We're paying for it, Lord. We're paying for it in our relationships. We're paying for it in our bodies. We're so caught up in the system of this world that it really amounts to lies. Father, I pray, give us the courage to stop. Give us the courage to find our Sabbath and to keep our Sabbath. Give us the wisdom to teach it to our children. God, may it become the one thing we look forward to every week. As we get into Thursday and Friday, Lord, we begin to feel the effects of the hurry and rush this world. May it be something we start to long for and yearn for in our lives, oh God. Lord, I pray that you bless those who will take your truth seriously, that will put it into practice. Father, we want to put it into practice right now, even now. May we be still. Even now, may we reflect on what you say you want to do in our lives. We'll turn our focus and attention to you.